Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and I would like to read the first 13 verses of this account, which I trust you are familiar with. Genesis 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 is spiritually mysterious. It's, It's very complex. This event literally shaped history after it. It shaped the cosmos and and the world. And I know that very often we we read through this account very, very quickly. We move on lamenting the fact that mankind at one time knew perfect fellowship with God in the most blessed place, the, the Garden of Eden. And yet man fell. And as wonderful and as blessed as The pre-time of the fall, in a reciprocal way, how terrible it was to fall and be separated from God. To be united with God in that paradise setting and then to be put out. And we read through this account quickly. We we lament um, about this fact. We, We kind of say, well, we would have probably done the same thing. We move on and we think about that blessed hope that knowing one day we will be with the Lord in in some paradise type of environment with the Lord. And we look forward to that, and he's given to us that that blessed hope. 
But the fall of man is, is like I said, it's, it's very complex. It's, it's mysterious. Uh, there is a lot going on here. About five years ago in the Tracy Bible study, we, we looked at this and we spent 23 weeks just on chapter 3 of Genesis. And today, although I was tempted to cram 23 hours into 45 minutes, I, I could not do that, obviously, and it was frustrating to even think about it. Um, but I've, I've been talking with your pastor over the last six months or so about, about one, one thought that comes in this passage. And I'd like to focus and, and primarily just focus on one thing out of this passage. And it will probably turn your thinking uh, upside down on this, but, but upside down in, in a good way. Um, God's word puts upon us that we need to be a Berean. We need to check these things out. We need to study. We need to think through God's word. Again, this is, is so profound. It's, it's complex. It's monumental what happened in the garden. Now, before we get to the message, I want to just ask you a few questions just to try to get you thinking of how, how mysterious and complex Genesis chapter 3 is. So let me just ask a few questions. I'm not going to answer these, any of these questions, but just to get you to think how far-reaching Genesis chapter 3 is. A couple of questions. What is the significance of God creating Adam outside of the garden and then transplanting him inside the garden and creating Eve once Adam was inside the garden? Why did Satan approach Eve rather than Adam? Now, of course, the, the canned answer is, well, she was the weaker vessel. And that's true. But, but there's more to it than that. What is the significance of Satan changing the name of God when he was tempting Eve? You recall that Eve said that Jehovah has said, I'll not eat. But Satan said, did Elohim really say that? There's significance to why he changed the name of God there. It says the eyes of both of them were opened to know good and evil. Was Adam's eyes opened in the same way Eve's eyes were opened? And what does it mean that God knows good and evil? Why did, why did God call out for Adam rather than Eve when he summoned them to his court, as it were? Adam's answer, in, in part in chapter, in verse 10, Adam said, I heard thy voice and I was afraid. What, what exactly was Adam afraid of? As a matter of fact, somebody else in the Bible says the exact same words. I heard thy voice and I was afraid. Who else in the Bible said that? Very importantly, at this trial, God asks four questions and he only gets three answers back. Why is that? And last question, just to get you to start thinking. In verse 17, God says he curses the ground for man's sake. In other words, God says, I'm cursing this ground for your good. What does that mean? How can it be for our good that God curses the ground? There's, there's a lot going on here. Again, it's complex. It's deep. Besides obvious questions that seem to pop up, we also make 
we notice several things. We notice that in the fall, we have this, this order of the serpent, and then Eve, and then Adam. Opposite of God's chain of command, if you will. But then when God pronounces the sentence, it's in the reverse order. The snake or Satan, Eve, and then Adam. All of that to say that Genesis chapter 3 is, is complex. It's, it's, it's deep. It's profound. It's, it's amazing what is happening here. Now, in, in the simplest way that we can under, that we understand this, or we've been taught this, or we've heard this, in, in, sim, in simple terms, we know that Eve was tempted. She believed the lie. She partook of the fruit, and so she sinned. And then she turns to Adam. She gives him to eat of the fruit as well. So, so both of them fall. They fear, they hide. They're questioned by God. God pronounces the sentence. They're expelled from the garden. They're expelled from direct fellowship with God. They immediately begin to deteriorate as physically, emotionally, intellectually. Eve is seen, uh, some commentators say she is as bad as Satan because the way that Satan tempted her, she tempts the man. Adam is seen as a bumbling, clueless husband who did not exercise headship, uh, did not love his wife enough, um, and he appears to have fallen into sin easier uh, than Eve. And, and what does Adam do? He blames God. He blames the woman. The woman that you gave me. That's why I fell. But, but there's more to the story than that. It, it's complex. It's, it's amazing what is actually happening here. So I'd like to look at, at again, I just want to focus on one item with you. And I'd like to understand just three things today, three points to the sermon. Number one, understanding Adam. He is key to this passage. Secondly, understanding the fall. And thirdly, understanding the events after the fall. First of all, understanding Adam. There's six or seven things we need to understand about Adam prior to the fall. And I want to to talk about Adam, the man, the physical man, the human being that was in the garden. But but first we should at least notice, and it came up in the scripture reading today, that Adam, sometimes in the Bible, Adam is shown as a type of Christ, a picture, a foreshadowing, a, a figure. And I think in this place we know, we understand, we acknowledge that the scriptures seek to elevate the Lord Jesus Christ, to draw out the gospel of redemption, to show the gospel, to show redemption, to show the Lord Jesus Christ through, through events, through persons, through, through the law, through institutions, uh, circumstances, all of these things. You probably know by heart John 5.39, where Jesus is talking about the scriptures and he says, these are they which testify of me. Sometimes the, the, the shadows, the types, the pictures are very explicit speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the New Testament, it says specifically this thing, for example, the Passover lamb in the New Testament ties it directly to Christ. Other times it's not quite as clear, but the spiritual mind understands. 
we read today, Romans 5, verse 14, where Adam is shown as a picture of Christ by way of comparison. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over, the, even over those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. By way of contrast, the book of 1 Corinthians contrasts Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, but the last Adam, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that which was that was not first which was spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, the Son of God, by creation, but Christ, the Son of God in all of eternity. Adam had dominion over creation. But Christ had dominion and authority over all things. Adam was an heir of the world. Christ, an heir of all things. Adam was a living soul. Christ was made a quickening spirit. Adam was of the earth, earthy. But Christ, the second man, the Lord from heaven, is heavenly. Adam in the scriptures is shown very, very often to be a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now secondly, as we, again, we're thinking about Adam the man, Adam prior to the fall. Adam knew God unlike any other mortal that has ever, ever lived. Adam knew God better than anyone we can imagine. Adam knew the nature of God. He, he witnessed the creating power of God when, for example, God brought all the animals to him. And Adam just didn't pick a name out of a hat to give to an animal. He called each one after its kind. In other words, there was this affinity between Adam and God in the created realm. Adam knew God's care. God said, I have given to you, not just the garden, but, but his wife. He understood the kindness, the love, and the goodness of God relative to God giving him his wife, Eve. Adam knew God on, on the basis of spiritual, sinless fellowship. Can you imagine talking to God, let's say in this room, where God is there in person, and there's absolutely nothing between you and God? Adam knew God in that way. God put Adam in the best possible place. Adam was a steward over creation, a perfect creation. Adam had this wisdom and discernment as he saw what God was doing, as he saw how God interacted with him, when, God, when Adam saw the perfectness of the order of creation. Adam had firsthand knowledge. What does the Bible say about us? We see through a glass darkly. We see through a glass dimly, very dimly at times, For I, I, I sense. But Adam had this relationship with God that was, there was no sin. He knew God. He trusted God. Remember, God, God cut him open to form a wife out of him. 
Adam knew that that happened, and he was, he trusted God based on that. He knew God. Think about everybody, every human being in the Bible. Combine Elijah and and David uh, and Paul. Think of think of all the saints and combine them together. All of their knowledge of God, and it doesn't compare to how Adam knew God. Can I over overemphasize this fact enough? Adam knew God so perfectly, so intimately. Next, Adam was created as a perfect man. That is, he was morally upright, sinless. He was proactively good. It wasn't that Adam was just innocent. When we think of him as being innocent, we think he's kind of neutral. That's not that he was created after the image of God, and by necessity, he must be morally righteous, proactively good, just like God. Next, the woman, Adam's wife, was formed out of his side. And from that relationship, we understand that his relationship with his wife was perfect. It was perfect. Remember, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Adam slept. God took one of his ribs. He closed up the flesh instead thereof, and he made a wife for Adam. There was no, nothing else in creation that could meet Adam's need of fellowship. Adam said, what? This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man ish, woman isha. Adam had a love for his wife that you cannot imagine. It was perfect. It was sinless. It was intense. It was deep. He was very thoughtful about his wife. He cared for his wife. He helped her. He had a desire for her. He understood that God had made her to complete him, if I could put it in that humanistic language. It's critical to remember that he loved her sinlessly, perfectly, deeply. He said, this This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God could have made Eve out of the dust of the earth as well. But he chose to make her out of the man. And that's very characteristic of this relationship that Adam would have with his wife. Deep, intense, sincere, perfect love. Next thought about Adam the man. Adam was tremendously intelligent. Tremendously intelligent. He could think through thoughts, arguments logically. His thinking was clear, not clouded by sin or anything that was not godlike. For those of us who are getting on in age, there was no degradation in his memory. His mind, he could retain everything perfectly. His emotions were under control. He saw things that no one else has ever seen, right? He was in a sinless paradise with God at the the inception of creation, really. He saw things and understood things that no man has ever seen. His mind was perfect. Adam was tremendously intelligent. 
Last thing. Adam, the Bible says, Adam was not deceived. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. This is a word in Timothy. It's used six times in three verses. It means to cheat, to be deluded, to be deceived. Adam was not deceived. It does not say Adam was not deceived first. It says he was not deceived. So as we're understanding Adam, we've we've mentioned these things about Adam. Adam, sometimes in the Bible by way of contrast or comparison, Adam is used as a type or picture of Christ. Secondly, we said Adam knew God like no other mortal has ever known God. No one else has ever lived to know God the way Adam had. We said Adam was a perfect man, morally upright, proactively good, sinless. Adam's wife, formed out of his his rib, understood, knew knew what it meant to be loved with a perfect, sinless love. 24-7, all the time. Adam loved his wife. He had a deep, deep love for his wife. Adam was tremendously intelligent, super smart. And then we said Adam was not deceived. Adam bore the image of God. He was created this way. His thinking process was intelligent, was logical, was perfect, sinless. He had wisdom and discernment that that there's been nothing like it since. He was a caretaker of this paradise, a high-value stewardship, and he did it well. Fellowship with God. What happened? What happened in the fall? So secondly, now, we've understood a little bit about Adam. Let's understand the fall. What happened in the fall? Now, it's a historical fact Adam and Eve are parents in the flesh, mortal beings. We read the account of what happened. It happened exactly as it's recorded. Eve sinned. Adam, as a man, also sinned. Everything that's stated here actually happened the way it did. But on, on top of this, there is a spiritual picture. There is a spiritual truth that God wants us to know. If we just leave it as a surface story of what happened, if we leave it there without a spiritual understanding, we ignore some of the contradictions, the apparent contradictions that the Bible has relative to this story. And more importantly, we do not do justice to the word of God, the intent of the scriptures, which is to reveal Jesus Christ. The spiritual picture is this, Eve sinned just as we read. Adam was not there. We will see this. It's not like Adam was right standing next to her while she was tempted. She sinned and she turned and gave him the fruit. We'll see that in a moment. Eve sinned. Eve representative of all of mankind. Man, woman, boy, or girl. Eve partook of the sin. And immediately her eyes were open to no good and evil. She, she had been lied to. She had been duped. She was a pawn so that the enemy of our souls could could ruin God's creation. 
She had this immediate, I, th- I think, horror is the best word I can come up with. Essentially, she was, she was sinning in the presence of God. Sin is synonymous with death. She, she sinned in this perfect place. She did not believe God. She believed a lie. And she immediately fears. What a strange emotion to walk with God and this negative emotion of fear she did not have until she, she sinned. I mean, what do you do with this emotion that you've never had before, of fear? She began to die physically, deteriorate. Everything was changed for her. Her constitution was infected with sin. She was immediately plunged into an emotional, a spiritual, a physical, an intellectual environment that she had never known. It was almost like instantaneously she was transplanted out of paradise into a cursed world, even though God had not cursed the ground yet. Before she fell, she too was sinless. No aches and pains. Loved her husband. She was loved by him, a perfect husband. Lived in this creation, knew God. What is she to do? She fears God. She goes to her husband, Adam. And I think she says to Adam the very same two things that Israel would tell God when they had sinned, when they had forsaken God, and they were in the transgression. And they had a fear that they were going to be cut off forever. Israel typically would come back and say two things to God. Save me. Save us. Do not forsake me. Do not forsake us. Adam immediately, remember Adam up to this point is sinless, intelligent, perfect. When he saw his wife, he immediately knew she had transgressed. Adam was not stupid. Adam was not sinfully silent, allowing his wife to be tempted. Adam was not unthinking. Adam was not deceived. Again, there's, there's commentators who suggest, and maybe we've all heard messages, that Adam neglected his role in headship. And he saw his wife being tempted. He did nothing to stop it. And if that was the case, then Adam would have been in a transgression before Eve. Right? Adam immediately recognized when she came back to him and she said, she said she, he knew right away that she had sinned. What is Adam to do? She said, do not forsake me. Save me. Adam loved his wife deeply. He loved her intensely. He loved her sinlessly. Adam knew that now she was going to die. She was already in this process. God knew now that there was some chasm between his wife and God. And this is the bone of his bone, the flesh of his flesh, the one he loves deeply. She's the one that God had given to be with him forever. Adam knows God at the same time. Adam is incredibly intelligent. How can he save his wife? How can he not forsake her? If he forsakes her, she's going to die alone. If he forsakes her, he would be alone. 
What is this superintelligent Adam going to do? There's only one possible thing he can do. Join himself in her sin and trust that God can work it out. Somehow God can fix the situation. She's already in the death process. He knew that if he joined in her sin, he too would die. He would have to get expelled from paradise. That's the only way to save his wife. So he takes the fruit at her hand. Notice, he doesn't go to the tree and pluck it off the tree. He has to receive it from her hand. And he joins himself to her in her sin that he might save her. He purposefully joins himself, trusting in God that God would work it out. You see the spiritual picture, my friends. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He has this intense love for his wife, the church, the believer. He loves her sinlessly. He is super intelligent. He knows that the only way she can be saved is to join himself to her in her sin. And God will work it out. This is the one truth I want you to see. This is what is happening in Genesis chapter 3. In the fall, Adam and Eve fell in sin. Eve is representative of the believer, the church, the bride of Christ. The spiritual picture is Adam is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to save his wife, the only thing he could do is to join himself to her albeit in her sin. And what that means for him, he too would have to die. He too would have to undergo the crucible of the the fiercest heat and deepest woe from God. But his wife will be saved. Adam knew what his wife had done. He knew experimentally that she was going through pain. She was in a process of dying. She had incurred the displeasure of God. He might have even began to see the effects on creation. Eve knew that she had what she had caused her husband, that he would have to undergo because of her sin. Adam, super intelligent, sinless, morally upright, walked with God as a common day occurrence when confronted by the woman. This deep love he had for her, she was dying. Adam, Adam, do not forsake me. Save me. Adam made a free will choice to save her. Now, if you look at verse 6, there's a time element between when she did eat and when she gave her husband. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now there's a time period and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. When you look at the Hebrew language, there's a a Hebrewism. I I forget the name of it. I I look back in my binder of notes. I've got a thick binder about this thick just on Genesis 3. But sometimes in the Hebrew language, the writer, the Holy Spirit, puts two things together. It appears in the same phrase, but they're talking about two two. Two exactly different things. For example, in Zechariah, I think it's in Zechariah 14, the writer talks about 
The day of the Lord is this, the day of the Lord is that. But it's talking about the day of the Lord when he would come incarnate. And then it's talking about when he comes at the end of time. But they're put together and you think, is this the same event? But it's a Hebrew text thing where there's, a, there's an uh, implied or a certain time element. Adam could not have been next to his wife when she's eating. She turns to him, gives him, and he just eats it without even thinking. There's a time segment. Hours? A couple of days? I, I don't know, but there was a time segment. Another question typically is asked here. Why did not Adam cry out to God for help after Eve had sinned and before he ate of the fruit? So in this time period, while Adam is analyzing and understanding what he must do, why instead did he not go to God and say, say, God, what can you do? And I think it again gets back to the fact that he knew God so well. And Adam was super intelligent. He was sinless. He already knew there was no other way. This, this question comes up in our Christianity. This exact same question. God sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners, to accomplish salvation. Was there any other way that God could have saved lost sinners? And the answer when you look at the scripture is this was the only way God could have provided salvation. The way of the vicarious sacrifice of the son of God was the way in which God in his grace, in his sovereign wisdom chose which has the greatest number of advantages or good things that would happen and his grace could be marvelously exhibited. God's requirement for salvation can only be met by the suffering of the captain of our salvation. John chapter 3 suggests that the alternative to God sending his son would be the eternal perdition of the lost. The efficacy, the power of Christ's work is contingent upon his person, his perfectness. The cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Sin is a contradiction of God and it must, he must react against it with, with a holy indignation. Sin must meet with divine judgment. And salvation not only embraces forgiveness of sins, it embraces justification, a positive righteousness. In our Christianity, we know, we conclude what God did by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Saving that was the only way God could have effected redemption. Adam knew this as well. Again, we, we need to understand a spiritual picture here to understand what God is getting at. Now, from everything I know about God and his word, and it's not very much, you can put it in the, the, the smallest thimble, but from everything I know about God and his word, I would expect that the very instant that sin comes into the world for the first time, I would expect to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
him exhibiting his victorious free grace, immediately coming to the rescue to save mankind. That's the spiritual picture of what's happening in the fall. Thirdly, this morning, let's quickly look at a few things that happened after the fall or help us to understand these. There's a few ambiguities or apparent contradictions. And the spiritual picture resolves every one of those. It resolves 1 Timothy 2.14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in a transgression. It does not say Adam was not deceived first. It simply says Adam was not deceived, deluded, lied to, cheated. Adam knew what he was doing. Secondly, it resolves the fact that Christ is a type of Christ, not just by way of contrast, but by way of comparison. Did you understand Hebrew, uh, uh, Romans 5.14 that Dennis read? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Okay, death is reigning before the law comes. It's reigning even over those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. What was Adam's transgression? How can we sin? It sounds like there's a group of people that sinned one way, not after the similitude of Adam's transgression, and then Adam sinned some special way. Death reigned. We sin because we are sinners. Adam's transgression was a deliberate choice, a free will choice to share in the sin, to join himself to his wife's sin in order that she might be saved. Death reigned even over those, us, those in the Old Testament period, uh, between this time, even over those who had sinned, but not sinned according to the transgression of Adam. It's interesting that we always say, well, in Adam, I'll die, and our sin is traced back to Adam. We sin just like Adam. Adam's sin, the spiritual picture at least, is different. The spiritual picture resolves the problem that God asks four questions, but he only gets three answers. Actually, the fact is, God asks four questions and he gets four answers. More often than not, two of these questions are run together and Adam is seen as blaming his wife Eve for eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a courtroom scene. God is uncovering evidence. God is asking questions. God is going to pronounce a sentence. First question, question number one from verse nine. Where art thou? Adam's response, verse 10. He said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's messianic psalms that relate this to Christ as well. We're not going to look at that today. But, but this first question and answer, we can see the partition of the question and the answer. Second question. And he said that as God said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Note, these two questions run together. And the normal thinking is, Adam's response is, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The woman you gave, 
She gave, I ate. It seems to be, it's a single answer to God's two questions. And he's blaming God. And he's blaming the wife Eve. Actually, Adam answered the first question first. God said, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who told you about sin? Who told you about shame? Who told you that you were naked? His answer, the woman who gave me. What a conversation. Adam, super intelligent before the fall. Eve falls into sin. She comes back to Adam. He immediately knew that she had eaten, that she was dying, that she was deteriorating. Adam's response to God's second question, who told thee that thou was naked, was that the woman who you gave to be with me. The woman ate of the tree. She came to Adam and she said, you're naked. Adam understood that Eve now saw something bad and evil, which God had created good, very good. Adam immediately knew that the woman had eaten of the tree. Who told you about sin, Adam? The woman told me. God gave a good gift in his wife Eve. He would not blame her for his his choice, his free will choice to be personally involved with her sin. The woman you gave me. He was not going to blame God or blame the woman for his involvement with sin. Who told you that you were naked? The woman. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He had to receive the fruit from the hands of the woman. Once he decided to save her, to identify with her in her transgression, he could not go over to the tree himself and pull off. He had to take hers upon himself. Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. When you break apart and you understand there's four questions and four answers, you begin to, it, it helps see the spiritual picture. Now, Chuck, could you hand those out? So I actually, I think it's good to actually visually see this. And I asked, I asked uh, uh, Chuck to hand these out so we can just all look at this to really understand. Because this is not the way it is normally understood. But if it just, you look at the language and it, it seems to be straightforward. When we understand that there are four questions and four answers, three of the questions were to Adam, one to the woman, then we understand Adam is not blaming the woman nor God for his transgression. Question number one, where art thou? He, that is Adam, said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. That partition is clean. Second question, who told thee that thou was naked? Answer, the woman thou gavest to be with me. It's a, it's a simple statement. There's no blame there. Third question, 
Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? She gave me, and I did eat. Again, we see the man Adam in the anti-type Jesus Christ taking ownership and voluntarily involving himself with the sin issue in order that this woman might be saved. He loved her deeply. This was the only choice. And then the fourth question was to the woman. What is this that, what is this that thou hast done? The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Genesis chapter 3, the, the fall specifically, is, is so profound, so deep, so dense with spiritual truth, so amazing. There's so many connections with Genesis 3 and, and the rest of the scripture. But this one truth shines for my money shines forth extremely brightly. Adam, as a picture of Christ, takes to himself his, his wife in her sin in order that he might save her because of the deep, intense love he has for her. If you were in the garden instead of Eve, if you were in the garden and you had sinned, Jesus Christ would have done the very same thing for you if you belonged to him. That is how deep. Oh, I wish we knew that kind of love. He has it for us. Oh, that we would know it and experience that kind of love. Let me close with two scriptures. You need not turn there. But in the garden, prior to the fall, In Genesis 2 and verse 24, God says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Ephesians 5 verse 31, identical wording. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And the very next verse says this, this is a great mystery, but I am speaking concerning Christ and his church. The fulfillment of the two becoming one, this deep love that the husband has for his wife that was pronounced in the garden, and then in the midst of the fall, fulfilled and enacted Spiritually speaking, by Christ, by the second Adam. This is what is happening. This is why Paul says it's a mystery. But I'm saying, I'm trying to tell you, as he goes through that tremendous uh, section in in chapter 5, it's Christ and the church. It's a great mystery. It's a great mystery as to why Christ would die for the likes of us who are so easily duped by Satan, who give in to temptation, who fall in sin, and but for the great, deep, intense love that God has for us, we would not be saved. We would be forsaken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And what can, we say, what can we say to these things? We worship and adore and love you for the tremendous gospel of grace. 
knowing and proclaiming again that we have been able to add absolutely nothing to that, to that gospel, but Christ has done everything. We magnify him today. We love him today. We thank you for your word, which reveals to him, reveals him to us on every single page. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.